Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The leaders say one of our challenges is people work in silos. They try to protect their silos. They take very well care of their team and so on. But at, at the moment it comes comes to another team, which, which they should collaborate with, it becomes competitive. Or maybe they fight for resources and so on. And uh, fears involved and you know other things. Hey, it's David. And you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey there, welcome to the show. And uh, I am excited to introduce you to our guest today. Before I do that, just want to say thank you listeners for making this one of the most successful leadership podcasts in the world and one of the top 10% of podcasts of every kind. Thanks again for all your recommendations, for those uh, sharers that you you shared out, and uh, all those comments and ratings that you leave. They help other people to find it and be a part of the human-centered leadership movement. All right, our guest today, and when we're talking about human-centered leadership, you can't get more human-centered than our topic today. So I'm excited to introduce you to our guest. His name is Reiner Lom. And he is, uh, before becoming an executive coach who works with organizations ranging from nonprofits and startups to multinationals, uh, Reiner had a 30-year-plus career in technology, started and developed software businesses, and led leadership development. At Hewlett-Packard, where he was for over 20 years, he launched new software product businesses, helped grow HP Software into a million, multi-billion dollar organization. And today... He's the author of several books. Today, we're talking about Aspire, his latest work. It's called Aspire, Seven Essential Emotions for Leading Positive Change, No Matter Where You Are. Reiner, thank you for being on the show today. Welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I love the, the, the name of your show, Human-Centered Leadership. It's uh, close to my heart. Oh, I know it is. I can tell from your writing. And uh, so we're going to get into the topic today now. Before uh, we get into Aspire and Seven Essential Emotions, uh, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. And you do a, a good job with this in the book, and we're going to tap, tap into some of your history and where you grew up. But before all of that, I'd like you to take us back to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. What might that be for you? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I rarely get uh, the opportunity to talk about it. And, and uh, as you say that, uh, it, uh, my very first official job, I grew up in, in family businesses. My father had, you know, a, a, a carp a carp um, carpentry or, or cabinet maker business and farm and so on. So we always worked and so there was always leadership uh, challenges there but but let's say my first official job in, in in the corporate world was as an apprentice i was 16 years old and um, uh, this was an apprentice as a electrician in in uh, apprenticeship and i was my the boss the master basically what they call the master of the, the department he said go down there to this manufacturing uh, department or hall this was a textile firm 
and uh, help them. They they, they have an, a project there, a lamp project, like big lamps to 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 hang there in in this manufacturing section and so on. And I came there and it was total chaos. You know, the, so the head of that department said, Rainer, I'm glad you're coming." They they had two weeks here. They could not finish. We had to stop our manufacturing and everything. And they said, oh, my gosh. And I knew the guy. He, he lived in the same village where I came from. He knew my father. And so that's why he talked to me. So I arrived at this project. And there was this senior guy who had a team of apprentices, like all young people like me, the age between 15 and 18 or so. Total chaos. So nobody was doing what he was saying. He he was pulling his hair. So I I observed for a while before even going there and I, to, to understand what was going on. And uh, this was not a very intellectually challenging project. I knew how to do it. I had done it before. I was part of, of it with, with other projects and so on. And so I went to him and I said, to, would you mind if I take over just for a moment? And I had no intent. I did not know going there. I saw because I knew if I just joined the team, it will just increase the chaos. <laughs> And he's, he, he already he pulled his hair and he said, do what you want. <laughs> and he stepped aside. So I called all the young people that were my age, right? So they, they listened to me as a, as a friend or colleague or so. And, they said, and I said, I have one thing I want to suggest you. If we finish this project by tonight, by, by three o'clock in the afternoon, we would finish work at four. I'm going to throw a party for one hour. And we will be finished early and we have a party, you know, we'll get drinks and stuff. And I will pay for it. I said, from my pocket, out of my pocket. And he said, yeah, we do. One requirement, you have to do exactly what I'm saying. So I, so since I know how to do it, I said, you so three people, you do this, three people, you do this, and another three people do this. And by three o'clock, we were all finished. And I had no plan for that. It was just came out of the moment where leadership was required. And I wouldn't even call myself a leader or anything. It was just saying, okay, get the work done. <laughs> now I had forgotten this for a long, long time. It, it, the memory only came later back. And now when you asked the question, it triggered again that that moment, how important leadership is. And it was it was not, was not so much about um, rational things. It was really emotional, engaging, the thing to do something fun, joyful, to look forward than just work, work, work and, and chaos thing. Okay, I mean, if we finish, it created that motivation and there was a reward. And the reward was not about material things. It was to get together. Young people want to get together and have fun, right? And I knew that intuitively. I was not thinking rationally about it. I was just thinking this would be a fun thing to do. And everybody was cheerful. And the master head of the department came and said, wow, you guys are finished. I didn't expect it. I said, yeah, and I didn't even talk much about how we did it. <laughs> it, was, it was just like, you know, and so on. And uh, wow. But it was interesting for me at that young age, 16 years old, that then based on that, I was given more leadership challenges without asking for it. No, It was just saying, okay, uh, so you can grow that way if you, uh, if you take on leadership. And uh, again, I was not, I would not say I was saying, oh, I'm the leader. No, this was about just let's finish a project. Certainly. And you found a way to get it done. I'm I'm curious, do you have any recollection of how much that party cost you? This was very, this was like, uh, uh, I bought like for everybody drinks and so on. And and maybe it was 10 German marks at that time. No, the yeah. euro didn't exist yet. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. Not bad. Not <laughs> and bad. we got paid. We, uh, as apprentices, we got paid. Uh, 
uh, by the company. <laughs> so we had a little bit pocket money. <laughs> very fun. Very fun. All right. Well, if you're listening, we're not suggesting throw a party every day after work just to get the work done, but it does tap into the motivation and emotion and understanding who your team is. And that certainly is one of the emotions that we're going to talk about. So before, uh, Reiner, before we, we get all the way into the book, your, your history and your background is vital to your outlook on leadership and, and some of why you wrote this book. And, uh, and you, you were born, grew up in Germany, uh, 20 miles, you said, from the Berlin Wall. And, and I'd love to, to learn a little bit more about that and its impact on you. Yeah. And, you know, and I lived through the final decades of the Cold War. I was in high school when the wall came down. Um, I've had the chance to work in Berlin. I visited the site and the museums, and they do a good job bringing it to life. But I know that we also have some younger listeners who really, that whole period is, it's a paragraph in a history textbook. And so I would love it. They don't have maybe the lived experience. And I would love if you could take us back and really anchor us experientially and what that was and what it was like for you and the impact it had on you for leadership. Yeah, this is for me an example, and I have many examples in, in the book, Aspire, about uh, how emotions uh, drive leadership behavior and, and to create that behavior then drives transformational change, how you can create change by shifting your emotions. And um, so I grew up in, in West Germany, about 20 miles to the border to East Germany, not to the Berlin Wall, to the Iron Curtain. Uh, and um, while I could speak up freely on my side of the border, my cousin Heinz on the other side was executed just for speaking up. Mm. And uh, the, the system in East Germany was still very repressive until 89. Now, under Stalin, my, my cousin was executed under Stalin, but after Stalin, things got better. People were not necessarily executed, but they would put in prison. They Maybe their, their lives were destroyed in terms of livelihood and career and so on if they were uh, expressing opposition or criticism of the government. So the system was very repressive still and people living in fear. And still in the summer of 1989, this was a few months before the wall came down or fell, uh, people were still fleeing in the thousands from uh, East Germany to the West. And uh, in the book, I'm describing a friend of mine, the, the reason why I know the, the emotional state there, uh, because she was uh, an 18-year-old uh, citizen of Leipzig. She decided in July, um, end of July, to flee still because she was hopeless that any change would be possible, despite Gorbachev had it having come to power in, in Russia and, and, and uh, Soviet Union, sorry, and um, uh, giving hope to people. But there was still, uh, people were pessimistic that the government would ever change anything and, and uh, fulfill their demand for freedom and democracy. However, it, by early September, a few weeks later, uh, starting with the Monday peace prayers in Leipzig in the St. Nikolai Kirche that were hosted by two young pastors under a lot of risk, uh, they followed, uh, these peace prayers followed with, with uh, peaceful demonstrations in the street outside of the church. And the number of people in September Force was only a handful, handful of people that did demonstrate peacefully. That number increased in Leipzig from a handful of people to uh, 70,000 to 130,000 to 320,000 by October 23rd. So in, in only, let's say, seven, seven weeks or so, 
right? 320,000 more people marching in the streets than were watching from behind the curtain of city of 500,000 people. This was a huge shift in emotion in, in people from being hopeless and being fearful to courage and optimism. Now, this spread out into other cities. Leipzig was taking the lead on it. They were in the forefront of, of, of this peaceful revolution, spread out into other cities across uh, East Germany with millions of people demonstrating, including Berlin. And by November 9, on November 9, by accident, the government official announced to International Press uh, Community Club uh, that uh, the border would be open at midnight. Uh, the, one of the border guards that was supervising uh, that night at the Bornholmerstrasse uh, crossing, um, you visited Berlin, I, you told me, but um, maybe you were even there. It's a very famous uh, border crossing. Uh, he was just trying to eat his sandwich in the cafeteria and they watched on TV and heard this announcement. So he immediately stopped eating. He didn't finish that, that sandwich that night uh, at, at all. He didn't have time. And he went to the phone and called the supervisor and asked, what's going on? What should I do? And the supervisor said, no, this is, forget it. You're not going to open the border. This is uh, this is not going to happen. And he would keep re repeatedly uh, uh, calling him as the crowd was pushing to the to the gate and and demanding loudly open the gate and they would become more angry and so on. And uh, after uh, a number of hours and struggle and sweating and, and anxiety and so on, and even his colleagues suggesting to get out the machine guns to shoot people to scare them away, uh, which, he, which he declined, um, Harald Jäger was his name, uh, he decided single-handedly to open the gate. And that's when we saw the pictures. Some of us, some of you listeners maybe that are old enough or maybe later they saw it in a recording on TV worldwide, how people were ecstatically celebrating with champagne and beer and climbing the wall and dismantling the wall stone by stone, basically that night. And then as subsequently uh, the, the, the system collapsed and uh, not a year later, almost a year later, then uh, Germany was reunified. That's a whole other story that I'm describing in the book, what emotional shift was necessary for that. But that's basically the story. And it's a story of an emotional shift that from, so when we talk about leadership, let's say as, as a CEO of a company or as a supervisor or a team lead, we're talking about a small scale change that we wanna create, right? But this is an example of the power of emotions at a larger scale, okay? And, and everybody can, as a leader, can take advantage of that and can learn to think about what an emotional state are the people that I'm leading in, what emotional state am I in, and what emotion do I need for this leadership situation right now, right? So to motivate people, to engage people, and, and to, uh, so that's what, that, what the book is about. And that uh, that motivation and the power of emotion, it's uh, it's it's one of those things that's hard to describe the era of history that you're talking about and how uh, even, you know, being in the United States, I would not have thought in my lifetime. It, it seems so hopeless that that change could happen and to watch it happen and to watch those emotions manifest and catch and and grow was a phenomenal experience. And for listeners who, who you were, if you weren't there and didn't see it, I, I hope that you've got a taste of that from, from Reiner's description here. So when we're talking about human centered leadership, as I mentioned earlier, one of the most human 
of all our characteristics is the fact that we have emotions. And yet, and, and you touch on this, many leaders are uncomfortable with all of that human emotion, unless maybe it's focus or intensity or drive. Okay, those I'm comfortable with, but many others are often uncomfortable. And yet, as you've been guiding us towards, emotions are a critical part of leadership. Can you talk a little bit about how, at the big picture, and then we're going to dive into the specific emotions that, that you address, about how leaders can become more comfortable. If someone is listening, like, I'm mm. really not comfortable with all the different range of emotions. Yeah. How do we start to get comfortable there? Yeah, and I would say that that is a common uh, a common theme, a common concern among leaders. So our our school system, or many people even at home, but in in school uh, or later in uh, let's say elementary, high school, all the way through colleges, through the corporate world, uh, emotions have not been taught. Right? We we are we are all excellent in in rational thinking right, and logic and so on. And I was very good at it. I was, I'm, I'm a trained computer scientist. I'm trained uh, electrical, electronic engineer. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, master's in, 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 in business. And so it's very rational. Each of these educations have been very rational. Nothing has focused on, on emotional learning and so on. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn it as a ways. And uh, one of the things I, I can say, that, so I want to come back a little bit to the premises of, of Aspire, of the book. So number one is the first premise is that anybody that is dissatisfied with the status quo and wants to create change, no matter if you are a formal leader or not formal leader, formal leader would be like you, you are, have a formal leadership management role in a company, an executive or whatever, or team lead, or you are in society, a leader, you know, you elected or not elected, but you could also be a leader by not being a formal leader. You could be a change maker just like I, that I described that situation in that moment, I was a change maker without being a formal leader. Nobody had asked me to lead, but I, I saw the need. So everybody can, so now the first premise is everybody can create change. Okay. But in order to create change, one must change behavior, influencing the behavior of the people that I'm leading. And just back to this simple example of the apprenticeship team there, changing the behavior of the people. But by changing my own behavior first, starting with my own behavior first, and in order to change behavior, one of the 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 the, the greatest driver of our behaviors are our emotions. Okay, we can talk about other drivers like our needs, unmet needs. We can try. We can talk about our um, you know values. These are all our beliefs. They all drive behaviors. But at the end of that long chain of factors that drives our behaviors are the emotions. There's no action we take that is not affected by our emotions. And, and I want to highlight that. There is no action we take or that your team takes or that any of your employees take that isn't driven fundamentally by emotion. And mostly we are not aware of it, right? It runs like a background process. Sometimes it, it becomes visible if strong emotions like anger, right? Or sadness, let's say, you know, a close relative or friend dies, and then we show we show physical effect, then we see the emotions. But very often, like resentment, right, in, in the workplace, when I come into coaching situations with leaders, very often I cannot see 
what emotion somebody feels because people are also trying to hide their emotions. So resentment is one of these uh, 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 emotions that are more inside that are driving stories of victimhood in our head and that drives the behavior. And I'm going to talk later, can talk later a little bit about it. Resentment is an emotion that is keeps our mental energy in the past. Mm-hmm. It rehashes the past things that happened to us or somebody did to us that we're not fair. We don't treat, we don't think it's fair. And, and that keeps our mental energy in the past. So we cannot look forward. So we cannot be optimistic. We cannot feel optimism or any other emotion that is associated with the future. So we cannot be a visionary leader. Right, that's an example. So I just show show how these things play together. But so so the third premise is basically in order to change our behavior, starting with our own behavior, one must learn to shift emotions. Aware of your emotions. What is the emotion I need for this leadership situation, for this challenge that I have in front of me? What is the emotional state that I in that I'm in? Is that helpful or not? And if not, how can I shift my emotions? And that's basically what Aspire is about. Okay. And every and, human has that, if, if you're aware of, of it or not. <laughs> and part of what you're emphasizing is, is so vital is it's not just your team or your employees that have emotion, it's you too. And exactly. starting with yourself as a leader and, and identifying, becoming aware and knowing how to shift and guide your own emotions is going to be critical. So we are talking with Reiner Lohm, the author of Aspire, Seven Essential Emotions for Leading Positive Change no matter where you are. So you identify seven critical emotions, uh, and I'll just run through the list. Empathy, compassion, interest, optimism, inspiration, trust, and positivity. And you've already hinted at a few of these as as we've been talking. So I'd love to uh, get practical and focus on a couple of the emotions that you emphasize Uh, and uh, I'd like to pick two. And then I want to ask you to pick one of your favorites that I don't cover necessarily. And uh, we'll leave the rest for listeners to get the book and and benefit from that way. Is that good? Wonderful. Yeah. All right, let's do it. Well, let's start with empathy. Uh, This is the one that you list first. And why is empathy the number one? Why is that the first one that you start with? So let's define it, what you mean by it. And then why is it so important? Yeah, and 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 I so I built the 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 seven uh, emotions a, 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 in the form of a pyramid. So they build on each other. And what you're describing is that empathy is the foundation of everything else. Empathy uh, drives caring. And when I talk, there's different empath- types of empathies. There's cognitive empathy, so that I understand what you are thinking or what you need. So it's more it's more cognitive uh, empathy. But there's what I mean in order to. Um, the empathy I'm talking about is emotional empathy so that I feel what you're feeling. So if you are in pain, if, or if I feel that you are in a need of something, right? So let's say uh, we are friends, we know each other and, and you, you call me and say, my mother died. That pain that you feel in that moment, that suffering, that sadness, if I feel, if I resonate with that, that is emotional empathy. And emotional empathy makes you care. It makes me care in that moment. And caring is a foundation for everything else. Leaders that don't care are not trusted. People want to know that the leaders, that if they are in a team or the CEO of a company they work for or wherever, the leader they support, that that leader cares about their needs, about them, 
Uh, and in military, we see that very often. Uh, I hear that from military leaders that they say, if, if I don't show care, if, if my people don't know that I'm caring, that they cannot rely on me, they're not going to follow me. They're not, they, they, they will not support me with full with all the consequences and so on. So that makes sense. So we know that caring organizations perform better than non-caring organizations. Organizations that have a caring culture. So that's why I have the foundation. It and the later the, the emotions that come later, the next one is compassion that includes and builds on empathy. So without empathy, you cannot have compassion. Right. And then uh, the others that you mentioned build on each other. And so it, it is a prerequisite for all the other emotions as well. So I'd like to walk through and explore empathy with you a little bit more, uh, Reiner. Uh, so that emotional resonance, people need to know we care or there's no trust and nothing else is possible. And I think everyone listening, especially listeners to this show are going to say, okay, yes, I agree. And I know from the work that we do when we're working with clients and doing leadership development programs, and we talk about trust and we talk about caring and the need for leaders to have their people's best interest at heart, that I genuinely care about that. Frequently, uh, particularly from frontline or middle level leaders, we'll get asked and there's a tension that exists that people have a difficulty resolving which is if I am having to operate in the business interests, uh, how do I care and communicate caring for the best interest of my employee if those are not always aligned? At least that's their perception. And I think in the case of the military commander that, that you were describing, there you've got a very uh, clear situation where sometimes the military objective might be at odds with the individual welfare of any member of the unit. And yet that leader needs to be caring for the, and people need to know that they care. I'm curious how you recommend leaders or advise leaders as they walk through that tension and navigate that. Do you have any advice for us? Yeah, there's actually, a, and that's why the second emotion, compassion is also very important to see that in concert with empathy, and includes empathy. So, 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 so compassion adds the commitment to, so empathy drives caring. I care about you. I, 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 I worry about, are you okay? And things like that. But if I'm not doing anything, let's say as an employee, if my boss, let's say, mm, yeah, I'm worried. I see the voice, but he's not doing it, not acting on it. Then that doesn't create trust and followership as well. Right? So compassion is important. Com compassion commits you as a leader to act on your caring, okay? So if let's say your employee tells you or your team member tells you, look, I have uh, I have a situation in my family. I need to, you ask me to finish this project in, in this time, but I have a situation at home. I have a sick child and uh, I need to stay at home. And uh, I know this is a little bit harder to finish the project. So can we talk about it? So if the, the, this, this boss says, no, under no circumstance, you got to finish the project, then it's not, yeah, he's caring maybe, but he's not acting on it. So he has to say, I'm going to support you. I'm going to extend the deadline or we're going to find uh, adding somebody to the team to help you or whatever. Tries at least making the best effort possible to help this person in this situation. 
and and we can translate that to any kind of other need that that an employee has in this case, right? And the same applies to clients. The same applies to investors or other stakeholders. So we can. So that's why I'm saying it's the the, the action counts. Also, the caring is one thing. Expressing the caring and expressing my empathy for you, but also then acting on it is very important. That and, and repeatedly and consistently, and that builds trust at the end, right? Yeah, one of the words that you used in the, in the book uh, was activate. It's not enough to have the empathy; we need to activate it. And I was reminded of a situation in my own life. Uh, after university, I had a professor who invited me back to address her class uh, with some of my life experience and, and learning. And as she introduced me, she said uh, she paid compliments and that I was very smart and and had a lot to offer the class. And then she said something that really zinged. She said, uh, and if you get to know him, you'll know he really cares. And that I, this was decades ago, and I still remember that of, oh my, that means I was not activating that empathy. I did care, but it was mm -hmm. not visible or yeah. relevant to the people I was interacting with without a lot of work uh, on their part. And that's not going to make me an effective leader. It was one of those that uh, your word activate that empathy took me back to that moment. Yeah. And this is what you just said. I want to reiterate it and reemphasize. This is so important that uh, a leader, uh, that the people see, the stakeholders see that the leader acts consistently with the caring that they have. I mean, the first thing is if somebody is not able to care, not able to empathize, it should not be in leadership. <laughs> Right, it's kind of the first. If that somebody doesn't feel, cannot feel that emotion, but in in reality, uh, David, it's not that somebody uh, can uh, you know un unless somebody is a psychopath, right? Cannot feel for other people. It's typically the question is whom do we feel for? Hmm. Who do we feel empathy for? Who do we feel compassion for? Typically, hmm. we feel like a mother feels automatically empathy and compassion for the newborn child. Otherwise, the child will not survive. And the father may be similar. As a friend, we have more empathy for a friend, but maybe we, we don't feel that empathy for somebody that we don't know, that is maybe part of another group or maybe from another country or far away, right? That is also suffering, but we it's just too much removed from us. So the question is very often not, do I feel empathy or not? Do I feel compassion or not? Very often for a leader is for whom do I feel it? And can I expand my circle of empathy and compassion, which the compassion makes me actually act then on my caring. Wow. And that makes me the leader. So I can, that way I can increase my influence. No? And when we're talking about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, I don't know that I've heard a more succinct way of talking about that from a general leadership perspective is, am I expanding my circles of empathy, recognizing I'm naturally going to have empathy for the people I know best that I'm familiar with that are most like me, and then expand consciously, intentionally expanding that out to include all of the human beings in my organization. Yes, yes. This is a wonderful statement that you just made. You know, that's, that's where a leader is, becomes transcendent. It transcends that is because it's really the question is, am I just taking care of my group? Very, very often, you, you might have walked too into companies where, where the leaders say one of our challenges is people work in silos. They try to protect their silos, their people, 
there, you know, they take very well care of their team and so on. But at, at the moment it comes comes to another team, which, which they should collaborate with, it becomes competitive, or maybe they fight for resources and so on, and uh, fears involved and, you know, other things. So before we leave empathy and move on to some of the other emotions, this is foundational. Do you have any recommendations to anyone listening who says, yes, I hear you, I do care, and I need to expand my circles of caring, and I need to be more diligent about activating, expressing, and taking action. Um, Any practical ways that you recommend or that you work with leaders to help them do that? Yeah, this is uh, so at, at, that, at that foundational level, and I would add the third emotion that is also important, that is interest, that is really understanding the issues of another person. Uh, uh, and, and so those three go really together. They build a very strong foundation. If, if a leader can cultivate those three emotions, empathy, compassion, and interest is a very solid foundation. The question is now, how do you do this, right? And uh, there's one thing is when when we when we lead when we choose some some of us choose an area to lead you have to be interested in it you need to be interested in the people's concerns there need to be an emotional engagement if that's not there and you need to force yourself i right? let's say you choose the leadership role just for the having the leadership role but you don't care about the issues that you're trying to solve let's say somebody hires you into a healthcare company to transform the company you know, transform healthcare basically, but it's not, you're not interested in it. You you will just not have that emotional engagement. You will not. So this, this is really very foundational. Choose something that really you are interested in that you like to change. You like to create a change. You like to transform. Then everything becomes easier. Now back to the empathy and compassion. So I, I give you a scenario. I, I have uh, very often I have uh, led, built, and led global teams. Okay, to to most of my leadership roles were actually global, and uh, one of the things that very often happened is there was a lack of trust between the people who were working for me in different countries because they didn't know each other. Okay. So one of the things, and, and I discovered that very early because the reason was it was painful for me, everybody calling me and say, I don't trust this guy doing his work and then complaining. And there's a lot of misunderstanding, miscommunication, culture, language, other things, distance. But uh, so what I always made sure to my ability that I got a budget that I could bring people together. Mm. Whenever my, ever in my global leadership roles, I asked my bosses saying, look, one thing to make this successful, to make it really wildly successful is I need to build trust among the people. I need to bring them together. They, they need to get to know each other. So I would, in many of my roles, I would bring people together once a quarter if, if, if the budget allowed it, somewhere in the world, the leadership team and would design exercises and activity together where they got to know each other at a human level. So one of the things I, you know, I had an assistant, she was, came out of travel. So she, she created this experience. It's like a cooking experience. So we hired a chef that would lead us. And there were people that really didn't like each other on my team. They did not like each other. And after that experience, they became friends. Mm. I never heard a complaint anymore because they got to know each other at a personal level. They suddenly realized, oh, my colleague in Singapore or in Tokyo, he has the same problems as I have. He has little children to take care of. He has parents to take care of. 
yeah, this and that, and and so suddenly, the, 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 this is this is really about empathy, right? Put yourself into the shoes of of the people. I like to to share a story that for me was very. Uh, very uh, transformational. So I work a lot with indigenous people and I started to do that about eight or nine years ago. I was hired by uh, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe in, in Colorado. It's one of the oldest tribes in the US, like over 2000 years they have been in, in the Rocky Mountain in this area, Utah, Colorado. And they hired me um, uh, uh, for a large leadership retreat. Uh, and coaching and so on for the leaders. And so I arrived there and the 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 the, the, the chairman of the tribe, the elected chairman, uh, Chairman Hart, uh, and he allowed me to share this. I have the, the, the story, a part of the story in the in the book as well. So I asked him for permission. So I asked him, I said, what is the best way I can help you? No. And he he looked at me and I said, well, many people that look like you try to help us. I mean, he meant white consultants. And so I said, and he shook his head and he said, and, and, and I asked, how did they do? And he said, well, they all failed, he said. And I said, oh, I, my, my, I mean, my heart dropped and everything. I said, gosh, this is <laughs> already. And so why did you hire me then? I said, well, we checked you out and you have the competences and expertise that we need. And I said, so what would you advise me to do? Uh, to to uh, he said you need to to walk in our moccasins first before you can try to help us, and this is about the metaphor for empathy, right? And so the next question that I asked him, how can I do this? And he said it's very simple. You uh, so we met in Denver, but the reservation was down at the Four Corners uh, at South Colorado, South Southwest. And he said, well, you, you hop on a plane or in a car and you come down to our reservation, and I will introduce you to people, and you will learn first about what our situation is. And their situation was dire. Uh, suicide rate was high, poverty rate, unemployment rate dropout. Um, drug issues, huge issues. And that's why he was struggling. That's why they were doing this leadership retreat to develop a new vision and new strategies for the tribe. But that effort that I put in to get to know the tribe, to empathize with their challenges, to get to know the people on the ground and build that relationship with the chairman has paid off in a great way because I was able to help them much more they're not empathizing. And also for me, really to develop, develop compassion, that commitment to serve them no matter what. And so today we have a great partnership and they rehire me for every retreat or for coaching or leadership situations uh, for many years now. And with any, any kind of leadership, that level of uh, connection and caring with empathy, the commitment to serving from compassion, and then um, and then ultimately, you said that third one is about interest, and that's that drive to understand and how much more powerful is anything you do going to be when, we, when we're when we coming to our team and to our people with interest built on empathy and compassion. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. All right. Talking with Reiner Lohm, the author of Aspire, Seven Essential Emotions for Leading Positive Change No Matter Where You Are. And we've been discussing empathy. Uh, which then leads to compassion and interest and in taking together that foundation, uh, those three powerful emotions for leadership. Uh, Rainer, I'd like to uh, ask you a little bit about optimism, uh, which is the next one that, that comes along. 
I am, uh, I, and we talk about it on the show and I've written a lot about it. I'm such a, a huge believer in the role that hope plays in leadership. And, you know, that, that essence of leadership is if, Hey, if we get together work together, we can have a better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's hope. That's optimism. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about optimism, you have a couple of types of optimism that you talk about. And so I'd like to explore those with you a little bit. When we're talking about optimism from a leadership perspective, there are in your framework, two different levels. Yeah, there's a, that's very interesting that you mentioned that and it's very important. First of all, optimism is absolutely essential for a leader being a visionary leader. And if somebody is not a visionary leader, he cannot lead because the, my definition of leadership, and I show that in the book, is to come up with, a, to understand the issues based on empathy, compassion, and, and interest, to really understand what the situation is, create a vision for the future that perfectly, ideally, the vision should ideally meet the needs of the people and solve the issues that, that you care about. And so optimism is what or related emotions, at a minimum hope, right? To say, uh, if, if you cannot get right away to optimism, try to get to hope at least. That somehow with the right resources, the right uh, insights, the right learning, that you uh, can create a better future. But the uh, optimism is absolutely critical and uh, optimism is, is not very high in general. So when I come into uh, into companies and, and all sizes, being it entrepreneurial situations like startups, uh, mid-size, large corporations, government, non-government, even communities, because people are confronted with the daily challenges, with the issues. And the issue and during the pandemic, it was especially strong. So there's so much negativity getting at people or Let's say an example is uh, I was once hired by a large corporation. Uh, the, the leader wanted to his people to be more innovative, to come up with more ideas and so on. When I talked to the people, they said to me, well, whenever I bring an idea to, my, to our boss, the boss that asked for them to be more innovative, he would raise the eyebrows. Right? So they fell into resentment. I explained the resentment before. It's an emotion that keeps you in the past and you cannot think about the future. You cannot be optimistic. So that's just being said before I go into the two types of optimism that you ask for. So there's two types of optimism. Seligman originally had defined one type of optimism. And that was basically uh, how you, uh, 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 what you believe about what is possible for the future that you can create based on past experiences. Okay. Now, Intuitively, that's very limiting because if you if you just always make predictions of the future based on your past experience, you're not creating anything new, transformational, or innovative. And Gabriele Oettingen, uh, she has worked, she was a research assistant with Seligman. She's uh, uh, from Germany, a professor she teaches here and in Germany as well. And she came then up with, a, with another, with the second type of optimism, that is when you think about the future without any limitations. Can you dream about the future, a new future. And very often, like people that create transformational change that are the, the leaders that we look up to being it like, you know, think about the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King or, or Gandhi freeing India from uh, from uh, occupation or think about uh, Mandela. So that's more in the social movement area or think about a Steve Jobs or, you know, others that created really trans- transformed industries. Those people had to, think about the future 
possibilities without the limitations of the past because it had never been created, right? So that's what Gabriele Oettingen talked about. And when I do innovation workshops, when I uh, facilitate uh, creating visions of the future and so on, I use and then strategies to achieve it. I use both types of optimism. I use the, the one type of optimism for a new vision independent what the experience of the past was, something that's really uh, an aspirational vision. So the book is called, you know, Aspire, aspirational vision of the future without thinking about the limitations that focus on the first type of optimism, to shift them, to forget, assume you had a magic wand and, and anything you wished for without limitations would come through. Just put yourself into that mood and then think about the future and create that future. Now, once you have done that, now you can go back in order when you create plans to achieve that future. Now we can think about what's in the way, what is the barriers. Now you can use your past experience. And what Gabriele Oettingen found out in her research was the way that our brain works in the moment, we identify the barriers. Our brain subconsciously, our mind comes up with solutions to overcome those barriers. And the barriers could be rational, very tangible, like the Berlin Wall, right? For the people of East Germany or the Iron Curtain, tangible barrier. But it could also be emotional, intangible barrier, like it was fear and hopelessness. They could not grasp, right? They had to overcome that. That was even much stronger to overcome. So in order to, to when I, uh, when I uh, look into barriers, to, to the desired emotion, very often I find emotional barriers, other emotions that keep people from like resentment to, as a barrier to move to optimism as a much stronger one than a tangible barrier. Uh, a tangible barriers, you can much easily be, you can come up with strategies much easier than with emotional barriers. So the power of the human mind and our teams uh, when we can dream big without limitations and then start from reality and thinking about those barriers and, and how to overcome once we identify them, yes, the solutions can, can start to, to come through. I want to ask a follow-up question about optimism and communicating optimism and how we do that effectively. But before we do, I want to make sure that uh, you tell us where to find your book, where to connect with you, um, any websites you'd like to guide us to, where should we go to find out more about Aspire or to connect with you, Reiner? Yeah, I'm pleased to share that. So the book is available, uh, Aspire, Seven Essential Emotions for Leading a Positive Change, no matter where you are, is available on Amazon in, in any country where Amazon is, is available and is selling. Uh, and it's available in, you know, print as paperback, electronic uh, version to read as well as audiobook. Um, the, you can reach me on my website, Rainer Lomb. So this is my first name, Rainer, then second name, Lomb. Dot com. Very simple. There you can contact me. You can also find the book Aspire there. You can connect there to Amazon, but you also find more information on how to reach me, uh, what type of services I provide in terms of speaking to your people, uh, facilitating workshops or coaching. Very good. Well, I'll encourage you to connect with Reiner on, uh, and to pick up Aspire, Seven Essential Emotions for Leading Positive Change, no matter where you are. So my, my final question here uh, regarding optimism is 
one of the challenges that some leaders face is they communicate optimism without the grounded in reality. And so they end up causing resentment in their team because they're so optimistic and communicating so positively. And we saw some of this during the pandemic, during the, not that the pandemic's over, but during some of the, the real isolation stages of the, the pandemic, where there were some leaders who were just so optimistic without any acknowledgement of the reality of that people were going through. And how do you be optimistic and communicate optimism in a way that's authentic, but doesn't come across as that toxic positivity or ignoring yeah. real issues or pain points or things like that? Yeah, th that's a wonderful question. And it, this is such an important question, David, because I think that's where many leaders uh, that I have observed, it's easy to fall into that trap, like because as a leader, we want to inspire, no? you want to inspire people, you want to make them feel positive, you want to have them emotionally engaged. And so you want to communicate with enthusiasm and with excitement and you want to be inspiring and you know some leaders have great charisma and so on and but you also need to um to acknowledge and realize that's that's why my interest is so important that why understanding what is in the way of getting there and especially what are the people struggling with so staying very close in contact with the teams with the people that that you want to mobilize as a leader so inspiration mobilizes but you also want to coordinate effective actions towards that vision. And in order to build trust, you need to act, actually, the leader needs to, they know, to know the leader cares, the leader understands, the leader is committed to the vision, but the leader is also committed to listen and specifically to understand what is in the way, what are the barriers. Very often they're not unspoken. It's just a feeling this is too hard or too big because we know if, if you, you, in order to inspire people, you need to set stretch goals. It needs to be something challenging, right? It need to be, but if you set the goal too high and the vision is too outrageous and, and, and the barriers seem to be so big, at least emotionally, people not even trying. They have already given up before even trying. So that's where the leader comes in and needs to check reality and saying, what is in the way of the people executing towards that vision? speaking out the barriers and that and make the people part of the solution i think what do you think is in the way what is in the way for you to move forward in in your area of your responsibility and what do you think you could over what do you need to overcome it maybe i as a leader need to support you maybe it's resources maybe it's expertise maybe it's just a coaching session and help you think through it something that's very often in my case when i had managers i just i mostly needed them to bounce off ideas and a step you know, help me articulate the barriers and then also think through how to overcome them so that's i think that's a very critical step and 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 the people itself they can they're very resourceful believing in them that they can find a solution but help them find the solution and it strikes me as you're speaking that there's a reason that optimism is built on the pyramid of empathy, compassion, and interest, because to do everything that you just said, if we have invested in that uh, empathy and acting in service and compassion and truly interested in understanding from their perspective, 
where those barriers are, what's happening. Now we have the fuel for connected optimism that, that truly can meet people where they are and help them. Yeah. Yes. And I, I, I need to reemphasize these are things very often we treat these emotions, these terms as, as a more in a rational way or be optimistic. You cannot just be up. You cannot talk somebody be optimistic. It's a feeling. It's an emotion, right? If you don't feel optimistic, you don't feel optimistic. So you need to help the people pull out like a leader it needs to be a coach as well, right? That's where a leader as a coach can be very powerful helping identify where is the people that I'm leading that are not, where are they on, on a scale of up? When I walk into, let's say, a new engagement, a new, like I facilitate a workshop or something, and I, I, I take a temperature check, like a doctor with the temperature uh, thermometer or, or maybe the pulse and, and blood pressure, I measure the, the level of optimism. Let them self-assess. I go around and say, where are you right now? And at the beginning and at the end. And helping them identify where they want to go. And then helping them identify the strategies, how to get there and the plans, but then also helping them identify what's in the way and how to overcome those barriers. Then suddenly optimism goes up. So when the leader does that, that is the emotional shift a leader can create in, in, in the team or in the organization. I love that. Don't forget, optimism is an emotion and we have to, to take that into account. Talking with Reiner Lohm, the author of Aspire, Seven Essential Emotions for Leading Positive Change, no matter where you are. Uh, Reiner, it has been such a, a good conversation. There is so much more in this book and so many more um, of the emotions that are available for leaders to leverage. Encourage our listeners to, to pick that up. I want to give you the final word here in that we have two minutes left uh, uh, in our time here. Where would you recommend as leaders are investing in their own emotional acuity and connection with their teams? Where should people begin? Yeah, I would, uh, uh, there's, there's two ways, two, two options. It's right why you, you check where you are. Like in the book, I have self-assessment. I say, you can do that for yourself. You can do that. Very often I'm calling in the leader. I also want to do it for their team, for their leadership team as well. And kind of almost a self-assessment. Where am I in those seven emotions or emotional states? Uh, what is my weak spot? Where, if I can focus only on one thing, where should I develop, right? Sometimes people are in general, based on their past experience, are weak, like have problems with trust. So if somebody has problems with trust, it will be very hard to coordinate effective actions, to collaborate, right? But some people believe they cannot inspire because they, need, they think they believe they need to be charismatic, which is not necessarily true. There's many ways you can inspire. So they even don't try. Or people have challenges with optimism or with any of the other emotions. But so first is really assessing, assessing that and then focusing on that area. Maybe that is a weak spot that keeps, that holds somebody back. Now, if somebody develops in, in those seven emotional state, states, the people that have been coaching experience transformation, even to a level that it is, affects every part of your life. Because if you are in those emotional states, no, and, and no matter if you're at home or with friends or in your community or people in church or whatever they are, they become, they become, they show up differently emotionally. 
and people relate and connect differently. You become a different leader, basically. It becomes, it's almost, it's a transcendent experience and almost has a spiritual dimension as well, even that was not intended by the book, but that is how I experience leader, how they transform. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit like as you, you know, I, I picture bells ringing and when they all add on the same frequency, the the, there's a multiplier effect with these seven emotions as we enter these emotional states. So yeah. listeners start with yourself, start with yourself assessing where you are in each of these. Uh, and Reiner lays out the plan for you to do the work in each of these uh, emotions, emotional states in a connection with your team so that ultimately you can be the leader you'd want your boss to be. Reiner, thank you so much for being a guest today with us. It's a great pleasure, David. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Really appreciate it. All right, listeners, until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.